Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams, and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well, plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Tally-ho, tally-ho, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk USA, and I hope you like what I'm doing there, kind of, you know, a British RAF call sign on an American podcast, but um, Happy New Year to everyone, and Happy New Year to you, John McManus, joining me um, in um, St. Louis. How are you? I am terrific. Happy New Year to you, Jim. How are things with you? Well, it's 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 a good day this morning, fifth of January. It's my brother's Tom's birthday, ah. um, but it is also the first day that it hasn't rained in <laughs> since October. <laughs> We've had so much rainfall. And to put this in some perspective, normal average rainfall in the Chalk Valley down here in Southwest Wiltshire in Southern England is uh, about forty to forty-two inches. We had sixty-seven inches in twenty twenty-three. Oh my God! Yep. That is and I've I've got these water depressing. these huge watercress beds either side of my house. I'm on a kind of like isthmus between the between the watercress. And last night it was a lake. You, you couldn't see <laughs> that. There's these sort of concrete divides between the the beds. They're kind of so long and, and narrow. And the whole thing was just one seat. Uh, not yet, but it may be coming. And I always oh hope really because I'm a withered old man and I hate winter. And it's just it just seems like year by year it gets tougher. I, I don't like the cold, but but it's oh, really? possible we're getting snow. We've had very little precipitation, so we've been lucky. But actually, know. we thought we thought today uh, this sort of start of the year. I mean, 1944, 80th anniversary of 1944, and obviously on the podcast this this year we're going to be going to town on all all things 44 from you know all the big events. But I mean, what a year it was! Yeah, it I mean, was the year in some ways. It's the pivot point year, um, yeah. and it's the year too. I would argue that uh, you really see the United States become a superpower, a military yes. and economic superpower, and it begins to assume the leadership of a, a vast uh, Western-oriented global co- coalition, most of which is still intact today. And I, yep. so I, th- I think it's really a, a majorly significant year from a kind of U.S. perspective, political perspective, too. I think we tend to forget yep. it's an election year. So all these battles of course. are happening in that context to where they yep. could affect the presidential election. The and it's Term. Yeah, and I think there's a tendency now to kind of look back on and say it's almost like a fait accompli. Well, Roosevelt was going to win and all this, and it certainly he was established and had major advantages. If the war goes sideways in really? any of these battles, so maybe that affects the political scene. Who knows? I think yeah, that's yeah, what it, yeah, what's yeah. interesting to think about it now. Yes, and, and here we are eight years on in another election year in the United <laughs> States, and, and you kind of wonder what little kind of um, detours and, and little kind of shock attacks on the side might kind of change events over there over with you i mean crikey that's extraordinary anything could anything can happen you never know yeah because i mean by 44 you know the u.s is mobilizing for all these major battles that are going to happen all over the globe in the course of the year any one Mm -hmm. of them then the stakes are high i mean normandy is the one we focus on the most because obviously that's the centerpiece of everything uh but obviously you know as you know the italy i mean everything that's going on there uh operation diadem there's a lot on the line there in in may of 44 um and of course waters in, in burma uh marshall islands campaign uh you know, January and February 1944. Uh, well, yes, exactly. We gosh. were going to talk about, uh, we, we thought we'd have a kind of like overview of 1944 in the Pacific. 
yeah. specifically, rather than the kind of the, the Western Hemisphere. You know, so where, so where are we at? You know, it's the 1st of January, 1944. You're MacArthur, you're kind of, you're, you're Nimitz, you're Roosevelt, and, and, and the chiefs, you know, the American chiefs of staff. You know, where, where, where are you at? What, what, what's it looking like? It's a year of hope, definitely, a, a hope of uh, a year in which you'd be expecting to have great gains, right? Yeah. Most definitely, but but but, but, now, but it's also the year in which, in terms of ge- geography, it's the greatest extent of the Imperial Japanese Empire, isn't it? Because it they, is, do this, they, they do this bizarre, which you know it's hard to fathom. They do this this offensive in China, Ichigo, yeah, and that that is really meaningful too. It's it's the largest land offensive in the history of Japan, um, you know, and in 1944, in 1944, <laughs> and and it's quite successful in some ways, uh, in the sense of inflicting major losses on Chiang Kai Shek's armies, uh, creating serious refugee problems, creating a major political crisis, in which is a lot of concern um, that they're actually going to get to Chongqing, collapse Shang's regime. Just to be clear, so so Chiang Kai-shek is, for those who don't know, he is the nas- Chinese nationalist leader. There is a kind of sort of civil war in waiting in China. Mao Zedong's communists and the national government, which is it's a republic of China, you know, the, the last right. emperor, etc., has been fro- uh, overthrown. So it's got that. And, and in 1937, the Japanese invade. And then there's this kind of war of the conquest of the eastern coast of China, mm-hmm. Beijing, Nanjing, you know, they all get swallowed up by the Japanese. Then there's kind of sort of stalemate, just largely because of just a huge extent and expanse of China. And and Nanjing is where Chang has his nationalist headquarters, where there is the new capital of nationalist China. In 1937, and, and, yeah. In 37, yeah, from 1937 mm-hmm. onwards. So, so the the Second World War might begin in Europe in 1939, and for the United States in December 1941. But but for China and Japan, it's been going on since 1937. And then in 1944, I mean, you know, one of the reasons why why Japan goes into does this war of conquest in late 41, early 42 is because it's not winning in mm-hmm. China and is running out of resources and needs to grab oil and rubber and all the yep. things that that it needs to kind of protract the war in China. And so yeah. it needs to get them off these imperial powers of, of the of the Netherlands, of the USA, of, and of France, you know, Indochina, um, you know, which is now, of course, Vietnam, taken by the Japanese in 1940. Yeah, and and in, in a weird way, that's what sets in motion the tension that ultimately leads to war between Japan and the United States. So I, I, I sometimes say, ironically enough, the U.S. went to war with Japan over Vietnam in 1941, not right. strictly speaking because they cared about Vietnam, but because they cared about what Japanese encroachment of Vietnam meant in the larger context of what was going on in China and, of course, uh, the Pacific and everything else. And so I, I like to think of it, too, when it, you know, that, that what's happened is that the Imperial Japanese Army had gotten the war it wanted on the continent um, in China, obviously, but also right. obviously in Southeast Asia, too. Um, and this had not worked out well enough for them. Uh, the Imperial Navy was always much more interested, of course, in the resource of the Pacific, especially the so-called Dutch East Indies or Indonesia. Um, where the, where Japan really could get the resources it coveted. Right. Um, and so they both get what they want, and thus Japan ends up in a two-front war, very similar to Germany in, in Europe, embracing a two-front war and with the same kind of catastrophic consequences. But yes, in so one front being China, the other front being the kind of Pacific and yeah, exactly. Southeast Asia. And, yeah, and, a and, three-front war if you consider Southeast Asia. Yep, exactly. And so what's interesting from a Japanese perspective is that Um, it's not really almost until 1944 that they're starting to become cognizant, especially in the Imperial Japanese army, uh, that this other front in the Pacific 
uh, is going to become a real problem for them, uh, that, that, that the American advance in the Pacific is going to become an existential issue. Um, because really, they're fixated on the continent for the first year or two of the war. And, um, you know, so there, there, of course, had been some key battles like Guadalcanal and uh, Buna and so on and so forth. But these are these are very small potatoes in, in terms of the, the involvement of troops. But, but do you know, do they not think, Bo? I mean, I got the impression that, that, you know, once the Japanese leadership realizes at the sort of back end of 1942 that it's going to lose Guadalcanal, that they're in they're in big trouble. You know, I don't think a, the, they... the combination of, of, of Midway and Guadalcanal. Or is that I, is that just a is that a retrospective? Look? I think that's retrospective. I mean, certainly we could find plenty of Japanese statesmen who kind of grasp this. Yeah, but I'm talking about from a, a kind of military planning context of uh, Imperial General Headquarters in Tokyo. Um, not quite yet, because to them this is all very remote, and in these places like Guadalcanal, I mean, so even Midway is just it's just a remote thing. That's um, certainly a major and, setback, and, and, but but I don't think that that all that many not terminal. maybe not terminal in the sense that maybe now there's a, a naval balance of power, but one that in time is not going to favor Japan as the U.S. naval program kicks in, and that's of course where we are by early '44. That has sure. started to happen, and by the end of the year, the United States Navy is is without any question, in my view, the most powerful. Navy on the planet and maybe on the history of the planet, you know, certainly by the end of the war. That's all kind of in the future from a Japanese perspective during Midway. And I think it would take somebody quite foresighted to sort of envision exactly how that's going to play out. I, what I'm so saying what is So what are the Japanese that, thinking? So, so, so uh, you know, at the beginning of 1944, the Japanese still thinking, well, okay, we've got a serious problem on our hands by this point. Or are they, or are they still thinking it's up the grabs? I think I think it depends who we're talking about. But if we're talking about the army... Um, the viewpoint is that these places in the South Pacific that they've lost are very tangential, um, and that this is sort of the outer perimeter. You only have it because the war had gone so darn well in the first six months or so, and you had advanced farther south in the Pacific than you might have ever envisioned, and that maybe that's kind of the Navy's thing to deal with. Because, of course, I think it's important to remember, too, from a Japanese perspective, a lot of the ground fighting throughout the Pacific War is done by naval troops. Uh, the special naval landing right. forces that are often incorrectly called Japanese Marines. They're not Marines in the sense of like the U.S. Marine Corps. But yes, they do belong to the Navy. The Army is fixated on China. So is it, so, so is it kind of sort of Solomon Schmoloman really kind of as far as that concerned? I mean, sort of. The but, Solomon Islands. but maybe that's what's starting to happen in 1944. The Imperial Army, and I, I keep sort of renewing their perspective in this because obviously their, their importance is going to grow massively. Right. They're starting to realize this is going to be a manpower suck. And we're going to have to divert resources to deal with this this looming American problem of MacArthur's advance across New Guinea, of the advance fully up the Solomons. But also what's happened by now is the Gilberts. Remember, we talked about Tarawa right. in, in one of our episodes. And that's been something of a game changer for both sides in the sense of the yeah. Japanese realizing that that a place of you know significant importance just fell to the Americans um, and that there's going to be a stepping stone and an island hop to the next one. And yeah. MacArthur, this is what we were talking about, like, where's MacArthur by early 44? He's really worried. Um, not necessarily about the outcome of the war. He's worried about what's going to happen to him, very MacArthur-esque, because Nimitz had that dramatic advance in the Gilberts. And he's really concerned that the Joint Chiefs in, in D.C. are going to say, you know what, let's just backbench MacArthur to maybe flank protection and let's invest all these resources in a Central Pacific Island hopping campaign to go straight for Japan. And let's not worry about going to the Philippines or anything like that. 
So MacArthur's looking for a big, dramatic, game-changing kind of event that'll help. Put this him is back the, the beginning the of Je- this is January 1944. Yeah, and and he also knows, of course, that the uh, that Operation Flintlock is on the drawing board um, and is about to happen, and that's the invasion of the Marshals, and that's a really a dramatic step up in the pace of the war. Uh, Flintlock originally probably would have happened around April or so, uh, May, March, or April, and instead it's going to be late January. Uh, so you've got a kind of accelerated timetable, and one of the reasons is because Nimitz has gleaned um, he. Can can go straight for for Kwajalein, you know, and um, and Roy Namur, these key islands, without taking like the right. outlying places that the Japanese had, had fortified too. And this is quite so. We're into the Central Pacific at this point. Yeah, we are, and so so we're out Nimitz, of the South Pacific. Yeah, he's out of the South Pacific, um, and MacArthur's still mired there in a way because he's in uh, you know the 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 uh, New Guinea you know, New Guinea, but also like portions of the Admiralties and all that. Nimitz has made this kind of bold move saying, let's go straight for Kwajalein and Roy Namur. Uh, and that accelerates the timetable as well. And it works out brilliantly. Uh, it's one of Nimitz's finest decisions, in my opinion. Um, and those are two battles that are that are really fought quite well, um, you know, by the 4th Marine Division at Roy Namur and the 7th Infantry Division um, at Kwajalein which are really kind of centerpiece tactical battles, in, in my opinion, of how this should be fought and how you coordinate with uh, naval gunfire support and whatnot. But but of all, the, you know, in the, in the long sort of the story of the Pacific War, those are two battles that don't kind of ring off the, you know, roll off the tongue. I mean, they don't, well, and they're why, really why, important. Why, 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 why is that? I mean, why, why are they well, not at Tarawawa or Hallelujah? Uh, these, uh, these are really unglamorous little places that have no strategic, significance except in this moment at this context i mean you're not going to have uh you know a, a big kind of political presence there or something or you know no one would have heard of Kwajalein circa 1939 in america you know it just didn't, right whereas we all knew france right i mean you know right, so right, right. um but so it's just this sort of place you had to have in this way station to defeat japan but but what's really significant about the success of flintlock it um accelerates that timetable probably by a good two months or so that allows you to go to the Marianas, which really is the central campaign of the Pacific war. It, it what Normandy is in Europe, uh, the pivot point to victory, the Marianas are for the Americans right. in the Pacific. And so Flintlock's significance is that, um, that allows us to get to the, to the Marianas when we do by June, whereas it probably would have been the fall. You know, which then in turn leads to an accelerated timetable for B-29s to be based there to bomb the Japanese home islands and so on and so forth. So, um, but what's what's a little kind of bewildering, confusing about the war in 44 is that the Japanese have victories too, Ichigo, which I, you know, we, we just talked about. I mean, that is tactically speaking, a pretty major victory in China um, in which they are advancing in a major way and inflicting tremendous damage on China, on the allies, and in which there is a major political crisis precipitated uh, in which the Americans are really worried Chiang Kai-shek's regime is going to collapse. And if it does, then where are you? And we worried that if that happens, the Japanese can redeploy those guys who are in China elsewhere in the Pacific, provided they have the shipping. And that's that's an if, but it could happen. So, you you know, it's a real worry. It's a real worry. Um, so the war could still, let's say Ichigo completely succeeds in its strategic object of collapsing Chiang Kai-shek, taking him off the board, um, and, and kind of marginalizing the 
marginalizing the Chinese communists in the north, freeing up Japan to redeploy some of its military assets elsewhere. I mean, we're looking at a, at a much, much tougher war. It's bad enough as it is, you know? I mean, we talk about these battles and how vicious they are. And think about the resources we're going to have to invest to defeat a Japan that doesn't have to worry about sending people to China. Yes, and, and of course, the problem you know, with Chang is, 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 is the nationalist government is... By this, by the beginning of 1944, the Americans have absolutely got the measure of that, that they're unreliable, that, that militarily they're all over the place, but economically they're all over the place. So for all the kind of enormous amount of resources that are pouring into China, I don't know. I mean, you just, you, you just, you have no idea whether this is going to be wisely used, whether it's going to be, whether it's actually materially going to help at all. You've got this, 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 this ally in China on which you've based a huge amount of resources and effort and time and enterprise and all the rest of it and you have absolutely no control over it really. and <laughs> that's that's part of the frustration and, and, and so therefore it's very hard to plan isn't it because you you've always got to have the kind of worst case scenario in your back pocket and a plan mm-hmm. if it all and goes pear-shaped over there and and then, of course that's really embodied in the tension between lieutenant general joseph stillwell Who's the basically the American? He has he wears a lot of hats, so it can be a little confusing as like what to call him. But right. he is chief of staff to Chiang Kai Shek. He commands American military forces in theater, not just in China, but in Burma and India. You know, he has a kind of a super, you know, other supernumerary duties too, um, because sometimes he's going to control Chinese troops, sometimes not. You know, whatever. But he and Chang don't get along particularly well. Um, and yes, I mean, of course, like you said, Jimmy, you know, he and the Americans have taken the measure of what they're dealing with here, quite a despotic, repressive and corrupt regime. But also I would say, you know, sort of in, in, in Chiang Kai-shek's defense, one that has been fighting our fight and by our fight, I mean, you know, you and I, British and Americans, uh, against Japan, they've been bearing the brunt of this for now seven years and they're going to lose 15 million people in the offing and it's inefficient it's crappy on a lot of levels how they operate but you know what they're sacrificing massively and they've been backbenched strategically by us constantly at every turn which of course has happened in the wake of the uh the cairo and tehran conferences in which uh shang is promised key amphibious operations in Burma by both, you know, the British and the Americans. And then we renege on it because we need the resources for Normandy. And so this is a pattern from Shang's point of view, which the Americans say to him, you're important, you're important, you're important, you're a key ally. You're going to be the bulwark of a new kind of balance of power um, in Asia. And our, our key, you know, China is a great country, a peer of all the rest of us. And then when it comes down to affording the resources, we say, well, no, you're, you're kind of getting last priority here. We'll give you a little dribs and drabs while we send everything to Europe or to Nimitz or to MacArthur or whatever, which we understand why. I'm not really criticizing that. Was there ever a question of the Americans kind of sort of throwing their weight behind Southeast Asia? Because the sooner you free up Burma, you've got all the Burmese oil, you can then put a road through it to make supplies to China. You know, do you strictly speaking need all those islands in the Central Pacific? Not really. Um, you know, would, would would a lot of the resources of the Americans be better placed in Burma than they would have been in in the in the Central Pacific? The Americans never seriously consider that. Um, but why not? Still, still, well, well, because there there is a sense that I, I think at uh, at Washington policy making levels that the Pacific War is an airman's war in the sense of the kind of bases you can have on islands in the Pacific and what air power is going to mean to the demise of Japan. And I understand 
why they feel that way because that's half the way it plays out on some levels because i think it's also undergirded by massive naval power and ground power that has to take these damn places um and control them which is not easy um so no i mean really uh Stilwell and others have to really uh, kind of shake the trees to get enough resources to build that road in north burma to, to have yeah, that yeah. supply link to china which is the but whole it would just make it would just campaign. make that that whole the supporting china would just make it so much easier it would but it, just go well, straight over from burma yeah and I, sh- I guess maybe i should revise my answer that there isn't a sense that we're going to put all that into burma that maybe we could in china itself uh, and in some ways, this is what Stillwell wants, is maybe even an amphibious invasion of China, in which the U.S. will invest its resources that way. Um, right. Now, this is, never really goes anywhere, of course, but um, it's something that Stillwell would have thought we should have considered. And I think even Wiedemeyer, after him, who, who succeeds him in uh, October of 44, uh, when, when Chiang Kai-shek is just finally done with Stillwell and says, you got to get this guy out of here. I won't work with him anymore. But, but, but you know, if you've got, if you've got slim at the beginning of 1944 and, and the, and the Indian 14th army kind of fighting in the Arakan and North, uh, Northwest Burma, you've got them winning that campaign. And then you've got, um, you go, or is it Argo? I can't remember which one it is. The, the, the Japanese attack on, on by the, by the 15th army, Japanese mm-hmm. 15th army on. On Imphal and, and Kahima and all the rest Which of it, is also a real crisis in northeast in, in northeast India. If you've got if you've got the kind of you know British drug Indians concentrating on that, clearing Burma and northeast India, India from the north, southwards, and then you've got the Americans attacking up through Malaya and Singapore and you know, Rangoon. Wow, that would just you know you'd just be swamping that peninsula of Southeast Asia. That would make getting into the Philippines that much easier. But but also it would mean that you could then just flood that area you get all those resources deny them to the uh, deny them to the japanese but also you've then got a land route straight across to to in, into china which is just mm. that much easier which is what you have to have and uh, that's the whole that's the whole game and, you know but- and you haven't got you haven't got to sort of worry about kind of sandwiching in between formosa you know now taiwan and the, mm. and the east coast of china you, you've got a route through the back door which is closer to the you know chang's nationalists anyway well, and I think maybe that's what Op- Operation Buccaneer is sort of designed to do. You know, the, that invasion of South Burma and, and yeah. you know, it, and it makes some sense on that score. But I don't know that the Americans ever really consider that. No, they don't. At all. They, they absolutely don't. I've just, I've, and I've, I've never thought about it at all before about five minutes ago. But I'm just, <laughs> if, if China's so important, then it seems to me that, that prize that it's, that hasn't. I'm, oh, I guess I'm surprised there wasn't more kind of discussion about that. And, and I think it would have been a hell of a place to operate, to, to try, you know, in terms of logistics and transportation and lines of communication, because building that road uh, in North Burma is an enormous undertaking that is, you know, for U.S. Army engineers, possibly their greatest challenge in the entire war. I, I mean, I, I'm saying arguably. I'm not asserting it as an opinion or fact, but um, it is an enormous challenge and so you can multiply that by whatever if we're really doubling down for for you know major operations in south burma or malaya or wherever else it's gonna be hard to operate there i think that would have been the main challenge is how much service troops you would have to pour into this god it's it's really kind of mind-boggling to think of yeah yeah okay well you know it's just a thought um but but on that on that logistical headache let's just take a quick pause we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back in a moment (sighs) 
Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save 40% site-wide. 40% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk USA with me, James Holland, and with John McManus. And we're just pondering alternative strategic possibilities in the Pacific and Southeast Asia campaigns and how you help China. But actually, well, that, that's just one of our sort of classic rabbit holes. We've just absolutely fallen down her line and sinker. Uh, when actually what we really need to do is be looking at a kind of overview of what's going on in the Pacific, not in Southeast Asia, not in China. What is happening in the Pacific in 1944? Yeah, so by then, you know, as I'd mentioned, uh, the Gilberts have been taken, you know, the, the yep. terrible battle at at, uh, at, at Tarawa, um, you know, is, is the most famous part of this all, obviously. But um, so MacArthur is really concerned. You know, he's, as I said, going to be backbench. So he's sort of just kind of in New Guinea at this stage. Uh, and he's looking for something that's really going to accelerate his timetable too. And so what happens is that there's a there's a place called Los Negros, um, which could offer a really good spot for an airfield. It's in the Admiralty's Islands, which are just north of the the, the portion of New Guinea where where MacArthur's people are operating, and it's joint U.S. Australian forces there. Um, so he's presented with this possibility of grabbing this island on the cheap. Um, and it, it's really an interesting thing. I, I think personally, this is one of MacArthur's finest moments in the war. On one hand, the intel he's getting from General Kenny, who George Kenny, who's his remarkable air commander, is aerial recon stuff that's saying yep. to him, there's not much Japanese there, we can grab this. But by now, um, what is now going to be known as the Sixth Army under Walter Kruger has what are called the Alamo Scouts. These are highly trained and selected guys who are supposed to go in and look around at these places and figure out what's there. Um, you know, it's, it's remarkably similar to what uh, the long range reconnaissance patrols or LERPs are going to do in Vietnam a generation later. You don't want to get into a fight. You're the eyes and ears deep in enemy territory. So anyway, these guys go into Los Negros, the first major Alamo scouts mission, and they determine, Hey, you know what? There's a lot of Japanese here, uh, but they, they use the term quote, crawling with Japs. And I'm using that 1944 term that uh, I know that's offensive now. And I apologize, but that's what they said. Um, but how does that really help MacArthur? It's not specific. You know what I mean? So um, he has to make that call. All he can muster at this point for a quick invasion is about a battalion plus from the first cavalry division to send right. in there on destroyers and a few landing craft to go grab this place at Los Negros. So he decides to so go forward So there are all Japanese it. troops on Los Negros. Absolutely, and in pretty good strength, I would say about right. 5,000 plus. Okay, and you're yeah. sending in maybe one-fifth that, um, you know, with a, with a battalion-sized landing team that'll later be reinforced, provided you can control the sea lanes there. Um, right. You know, which is becoming more possible because of the, the growth of the U.S. Navy and the presence of the Australian Navy, too. But... Um, this is a, a kind of a gamble in, in some respects, or maybe I should sure. put it as it's a risk. It's, it's a calculated risk. So this is February 28, 1944. And this really will become kind of the game changer for MacArthur to get back in the strategic conversation because Los Negros, um, is a hard won victory that you get surprise on the Japanese. And you know, what's interesting, Jim, is that in that actual invasion, 
the Japanese expected it. So you didn't right. really like surprise them that there was an invasion, but they thought it would come somewhere else. So it was Got mildly it. similar to what happens with the Germans in France. They expect the invasion, but they kind of think it's coming at Calais rather than Normandy or something. Right, right, right. Um, in this case, the Japanese have most of their defenses oriented in the opposite direction to where you land. But once they react, then you got a problem. And so then it's, then the game is let's hold them off in a perimeter and let's try and reinforce while we do that. And this is done successfully over the course of that next five to seven days. So this battle is not that well known, but the first cavalry division there, uh, you know, loses, I think 314 dead. Uh, and they basically, annihilate the bulk of that Japanese defense force. This is Imperial Japanese army. Who's there? Not, not the Navy. Well, I'm just looking at a, at a photo, uh, an aerial photograph of the Los Negros and you can still see the airfield there in the bottom. The Momota airfield. Southeast corner. There it is. That's the key to the whole thing. And 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 that's the other thing too, is that, um, you know, they determine fairly quickly what they can and can't do with that airfield. And so now that you control that, you really have outflanked the Japanese in New Guinea on some levels. So this allows MacArthur then to proceed with the Hollandia invasion that'll happen in April. That right. really is massive and, and really is a, a, you know, significant moment in the South Pacific without yeah, yeah, yeah. Los Negros. Um, I don't know that that happens. And, and uh, so it's not all that well known, but not at it, all. it really is. If we wanted to point to like one moment when now all of a sudden the major operations of the Philippines become more viable the ones that macarthur has always wanted of course yeah. um i think it's when he succeeds at los negros and that was no sure thing by the way he went in with the task force sailed in um with them and he he landed you know i think a couple hours after h hour um you know to, to tour around so what had happened is you you get ashore the japanese are stunned things are quiet for several hours while the japanese are coming up with the yep. idea of a counterattack. and so macarthur's there at that time and then he gets back aboard ship and uh, it goes back to Australia, I think. Amazing. Um, yeah, it really is. It's it's really quite fascinating. And the, the other thing, the other dynamic that's in play for the Japanese is that um, the two main sort of battalion level commanders who are going to mastermind this counterattack hate each other and won't work right. with each other at all. <laughs> and so the larger Japanese commander has to kind of manage that dynamic. And as you can imagine, that doesn't help them one bit. Um so, so yeah, at Los Negros too. So, do, you do, end do, up with... do they then take so the part of the the, the whole Amrity Islands are taken? You know, Los, ne- Los Negros is it's the first or bit, and then, it's, and then Manus. Manus is like right next door, across this little isthmus, much bigger, and it's much bigger, and it's just a massive jungle. It's it's just a place you you know you don't want most of it. So right. what so happens you're not having, is that yeah. Well, yeah, so you've got, you know, you hold on to the airfield and the perimeter and all that in that, that first week. And so then much of the rest of the campaign for the next several weeks is just patrolling out there to, to police up the Japanese survivors and make sure you, you control the islands well enough and and move on. And, and the other thing, so MacArthur being MacArthur, um, he's going to insist that he control anyone who's based in the Admiralties um, because Halsey is like, well, we're going to have naval assets there and I should probably be in command and control that. And yeah. even though he and Halsey get on well, he digs in, MacArthur digs in his heels like, no, no, uh, you can leave if that's what you feel and, and I'm going wow. to control it all. And so he's very serious about that because he thinks, um, you know, w- what this is going to mean is ultimately getting back to the Philippines and he doesn't want anything to mess with that. Um, yeah, so the, the first cavalry division is a really high speed unit. 
And this is their first major combat in World War II. And of course, they've been in a lot ever since. Um, but you, I think you see already that this is going to be one of the go-to units for the U.S. Armed Forces. Um, and there's a Medal of Honor recipient from that fight uh, to hold on to the to the perimeter, uh, a guy named Troy McGill, um, yep. who is on a machine gun and, and holds off the Japanese. And uh, really, it's it's quite a story. But the, the, the sort of interesting personal level, it was, I, I knew his, um, his nephew, uh, when I was at uh, the University of Tennessee, uh, his nephew was actually a Navy veteran, so it was a it was a weird deal where his nephew was almost the same age as Troy. Um, and so, I mean, that was really the McGill family was profoundly affected by this battle, as you can imagine. Yeah, um, my friend, uh, his nephew Wes, was aboard um, USS Kanawha, which was sunk in the South Pacific, and then later, I think the USS Colorado. So he served in the whole Pacific War. Um, wow. You know, so, but it was interesting to him to, to kind of explore what had happened with his Uncle Troy. It was it was this very big family. They had another one who uh, who was in the 8th Air Force. And I mean, it's just fascinating. But so the, it's just one of those moments that isn't that well known. But, uh, you know, it's Troy McGill is right up there with it? any other Medal of Honor recipient in terms of his importance, I think. No, it's, 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 it's absolutely extraordinary. And you can, you can see, if, you, if anyone cares to look at the map, you, you can see uh, New Guinea. You know, it's got a big island, New, New Britain, off, off on its kind of sort of northeast, well, just side to the east, but side to the north, um, sort of flank of New Guinea. And then directly north of that, you, you've got the Aborigine Islands. And, you know, they're pretty small, but you can see why they're so significant because it's a kind of blocking position, that airfield, to, to the Japanese efforts to resupply New Guinea, right? It is. And and so now that you have that, the Japanese are really restricted in their mobility throughout much yep. of New Guinea. And you now have the initiative. So it's it's just in, an interesting little quirk of geography that makes this place really important uh, for that yep. moment. And once you have that, you then have the initiative. And, and, uh, and it's so interesting how it all plays out. I mean, Kenny, strictly speaking, is wrong. And, it, you know, what he's urging MacArthur to do could have led to disaster to losing that entire uh, battalion-sized combat team sure. and an, an invasion that fails, say. Um, but fortunately, this doesn't happen. But it's, I think it's a classic example of a commander's dilemma of having to make really consequential decisions based on mixed intel data. And, and that's, I think, it's useful to study, you know, because obviously I think that happens a lot. Right? So, 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 so once once MacArthur's got the Admiralty Islands, then, then how, how does that leap? forward towards the, you know, going back into the Philippines and more or less. Yeah. So, so the Admiralty on like the success there at Los Negros and Manus is what paves the way for the invasion of Hollandia in April, 1944, which massively outflanks many of the Japanese on the the North New Guinea coast, thus accelerating the timetable, thus putting um, MacArthur, I guess we'll say sort of in the conversation to argue for the Philippines. Um, which is where we are by middle of the summer when you have the famous Pearl Harbor meeting with MacArthur, Roosevelt, and Nimitz. That by that time, Hollandia has happened, which allows MacArthur to kind of hold his head up high and say, you know what, I'm advancing as dramatically as Nimitz is. Um, And it allows Roosevelt to say, you know, maybe there's an advantage in a kind of two-fisted punch here. 
and and uh, so so then the question becomes later in the year, of course, uh, whether you're going to go for Formosa, which is of course today Taiwan, or whether you're going to go to the Philippines. And the Navy tends to want Formosa, and of course MacArthur. We all know he wants the Philippines. We all know he gets his way. But this was no sure thing at the beginning of 1944. Uh, a lot. I mean, had to be to fair, the Philippines is a lot closer to uh, to, to New Guinea. Um, oh yeah. Well, and than Taiwan and also. Is. You know, MacArthur's arguing at, at a almost mystical level, in a way, too, that the Philippines means more than Formosa in terms of liberating uh, basically what it our countrymen. No question about it. Liberating our countrymen, as he would have seen it. Uh, Philippines was home to him. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and he felt we had a moral obligation to liberate 17 million people who are essentially, if not full American citizens, close to it, um, and are about to get their independence you know, from the United States and, and are very much loyal to us. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, too, you know, our POWs are there and, and all that as well. And But he also think, I mean, beyond that, I, I do think he truly believed that this was the best thing strategically for the U.S. to right. defeat Japan. But, but sometimes I wonder if he was more interested in liberating the Philippines than actually <laughs> defeating Japan, too, on some levels, um, because it was so personal to him. And I understand why. But it is interesting if you look at, you know, if you look at a big picture of the map and, and, and what you see is you see China and then you see Australia, um, that huge land mass. Then you see the Philippines off the kind of sort of southeast kind of edge of, of China going down towards Papua New Guinea, which is much bigger than, than the Philippines. And huge, uh, and then on the, the Solomon Islands, and it's kind of like a, it's like a sort of, you know, Papua New Guinea at the end of, if you think of of the kind of that whole thing being like a scorpion's tail, like a scorpion scorpion sting, you've got that kind of bulbous end of the tail of the scorpion, which is Papua New Guinea, coming down from the tail of the Philippines, and if you think beyond that, you've got the Solomon Islands off the kind of you know to the east of Papua New Guinea, you can see from a kind of you know a, a U.S. Army point of view having kind of being in at the end on Guadalcanal and then subsequent battles on the Solomon Islands. You think the next obvious step is is Papua New Guinea. The next obvious step from there is the Philippines, you know, from a geographical, logistical point of view, as well as from an emotional, psychological point of view as well. Taiwan is then north of Manila and, and north of, of the Philippines. So you are going to have to hop from there. But then on the other hand, if you then home in, on the central Pacific, north of Papua New Guinea, and to the east of the Philippines, then you've got Palau, you know, which is Palau. You've then got, you know, Guam, just to the kind of north east of that. So you can see why the Marines who are already in that kind of uh, that central Pacific now are also thinking more in terms of Formosa, stroke Taiwan. Just well, from it's more of the Navy thinking along those lines because if we do go to Formosa, it's going to be the Army that has to carry out the most of it. Because yeah, but but uh, that, that, so 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 it really doesn't make that much sense to go into Formosa before you go to Philippines. Well, you you have to choose one or the other, and so that's why this is such a showdown thing for MacArthur to get the Philippines instead of Formosa. Now, the way Admiral Ernest King, the chief of naval operations, sees it, the Philippines are tangential to the ultimate objective of getting to the Japanese home islands. And there ought to be just a straight on kind of advance island hopping. And he sees Formosa as being closer to Japan and thus a better go from that point of view. Plus you could also use it as a jump off point to help Chiang Kai-shek on the Well, on you the can, but, but from New Guinea and from, from even from Guam, I mean, it's a hell of a long way to Taiwan. Yeah. 
King would see it as, well, we're going to grab key islands on the way as uh, the island hopping. Certainly the Marianas, obviously, are crucial to that, but also, you know, the Marshalls and, and others that are lesser known. Um, so, of course, he's looking at it, too, like a naval strategist, looking at the, the wide ocean and saying, all right, we use that as our transit point. And we have our naval power and we've got our, um, as he would see it, too, the, the carrier forces that are crucial to this that operate in those wide oceans that that's how you're going to be able to accomplish this. I think the weakness of his argument is that if you're really talking about invading at Formosa, um, you've got a series of serious problems uh, to deal with because the island is enormous. Uh, it's got all sorts of incredibly defensible terrain. It has a vaguely hostile population versus the Philippines that's for you. Um, it's going to be a manpower suck. You're going to need major army service forces to, to sustain you, uh, much less what's going to happen if the Japanese use their bases in the Philippines and Indonesia to attack you by air and sea. I mean, I've got else. to say, all, all, all those things make it, to me, a total slam dunk. I mean, I, I know there's this big, you know, the big meeting with Roosevelt and, and MacArthur and, mm -hmm. you know, he thinks he's won the day and all the rest of it, and it, but it, but it feels like it's like a shootout. But I can't even believe it's got to that because to me it seems so completely obvious you'd go to the Philippines rather than than Formosa. Well, Mac MacArthur would be very happy with you and very proud of you right now <laughs> if you were here with us. <laughs> well, but for all those, you know, they're not just from the geography. I mean, that's one hell of an island hop. So these these discussions, these discussions about about this are happening when this is a kind of the fall of nineteen forty four. That's yeah. So these are going to be operations in the fall of '44. What King would rejoin if he were here to to, to speak yeah, with us now, he would say, "Well, you know, Jim, you're right. I mean, I understand, but let's not retreat from what operations in the Philippines are going to mean. That's seven thousand islands, and it's <laughs> going to be a major manpower suck, and it's going to lead to destruction for the Filipino people. It's all these things that actually do happen." In the same way that when we decide we're going to invade France, we're going to destroy a lot of France. Well, yeah. when we invade the Philippines, we're going to destroy a lot of the Philippines. And so what King would say is, wouldn't it be better to destroy the places that are hostile rather than the places that are friendly? And we can liberate the Philippines later when we've won in Japan. Of course, too, what MacArthur would come back to and say, well, what's going to happen in the meantime is that there's going to be an embargo and they're going to starve the Filipino people and you're going to lose hundreds of thousands of people to famine. And he's right about that, too. Uh, uh, well, MacArthur would also presumably rejoin is saying, yeah, but Formosa is a total bitch of, a, of an invasion, yeah, uh, you know, because of the coastline, because of the hostile population. You know, and, and at this stage of the war, we do not want to be undertaking anything where, we, where there's even a fraction of a chance that we might lose. Mm -hmm. which there could have been a chance, you know, and, and I think, and I think that's interesting because obviously it applies to today, doesn't it? Um, yes. A potential invader of Taiwan has a lot of issues to deal with that are presumably more potent today than they might've been in 1944 and 45. Well, you know? yes. So, and as far as I'm, as far as I'm aware, there is no uh, nation in the world that is fully equipped for amphibious warfare. And that's the right. way that the Americans were by 1944. Exactly. And so that's another factor as well to consider. So it's, um, yeah, it would, it would have been a really tough go there. The operation was called Causeway back then. Right. That was what they were calling it. But obviously it never happens, fortunately, I guess. But uh, but yeah, I mean, of course, the Philippines. So I, I just think I understand that dilemma 
uh, both points of view, I guess. Um, because it, you know, really is tragic in some ways what happens in the Philippines. So, so what does happen is you do have the invasion of the Philippines, um, in, in the back end of 1944, but you also have these island hopping, um, operations and not least the Palau, Peleliu, which turns into this total horror story, uh, um, which again is a combination of, of U.S. Navy and U.S. Marine Corps for a bit. And they have an absolute shock and then it's taken over by the, by the army. And of course, in the end of it, it's a complete. It's not a waste of time, but it's but it's it, it. You didn't need to do it. So that's coming in September to November, nineteen forty-four, as well. So what? So just just to sort of just very very quickly wheel back. So what's happening in the summer of nineteen forty-four, and then the yeah, in that Pacific campaign. So by then, of course, most famously, you have the Mariana. You, you got the sorry, you got the Admiralties taken out by by May. That kind of oh for sure, the 18th yeah, of, really. Eighteenth of May is the end of. By March, uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess we could say operations declared end in early May, but really, well, because you got to get Manus as well. Yeah, we've won strategically, and we're moving on. April is when Hollandia happens, um, and then you're going to have, you know, by by we tend to forget this. June, July, August, there's bitter fighting that goes on in New Guinea as the Japanese react. It's it's very similar, you know, like when you have a successful flanking move, there's a reaction to that, and you have to kind of defend your flank. Uh, you see that at the Driniamore River in uh, in New Guinea when these bypass Japanese decide rather than starve, we're going to attack. So MacArthur's dealing with those headaches like in his what has become his rear, in a way. You have the Battle of Biak, which is also unfortunately forgotten. This is May and June 1944, uh, and that's an island like um, sort of the northwest of New Guinea that you need as a airfield and pivot point to move on to the Philippines, of course. Um, and this is one heck of a battle that, that devolves into caves. And here's a pattern we're going to see for the rest of the war. As you go farther north, it becomes less about jungle fighting and more about cave fighting in some respects. And the Japanese with the inland defense and all that, which they do hastily at Biak, but eventually more deliberately later. Um, so you got that. And then, of course, more famously, the operations of the Marianas, the invasion of Saipan on June 15th. The invasion of Guam in uh, on July twenty first, the invasion of Tinian, you know those are those are. If I'm trying to be as objective as I can, those are probably the most significant um, strategically, you know, to the outcome of the war, you know, the operations that we got. Why? Because that's where you get airfields from which you're going to bomb Japan, which obviously is really really important. But that's not happening until the end of the year too. So. Um, so I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's what what strikes me. And it's me worth saying is there is still an airfield on Tinian. Yeah, absolutely. And and by the way, it's been it's being developed and used more now than it had been in the past. I'll say it's I'll just, just say amazing. That. I think we all know it? why. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there's a little bit and Guam more of just presence. to the south of it. Yeah, yeah. And Guam obviously has remained a major. You know, it's a U.S. territory, and you know, you've got. Um, you know, a major uh, air force base there, Anderson Air Force Base, and U.S. You've been to Guam, haven't you? I have not. No, have no, you not? Believe it or not. Well, listen. So, 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 and then you get that, and you have this awful fight at Palau, and then you have the invasion of of the Philippines. So that is, in a kind of nutshell, what's what's happening in the Pacific in 1944. I mean, it's it's you literally couldn't back more drama into it. What if anyone's listening to this? If they're out kind of walking the dog or sitting on the kind of morning commute or whatever, wherever you're listening to your podcast, I cannot urge you enough to look at, you know, an atlas or Google Maps or something because it really you really do start to get, you know, all these places are just names, Tinian, you know, Guam, uh, um, Palau, 
the Admiralty Islands, you know, where, you, you know, trying to get a sense of where all this stuff is and how it all fits together is it can be really, really confusing. And I tell you what, you, you, it really does kind of throw a lot of light onto kind of you sort of go, oh, okay, I get it, I get where that is. And just remember that Formosa is now Taiwan, um, so one and the same well, place. And, the and, and you thing, can start to see how it all fits together, can't you? And I should hasten to add, lest we forget, um, the other sort of subplot that's happening is that North Burma campaign designed yeah, to open up the road into China. And so Stillwell has had to move heaven and earth just to get a yep. regimental sized infantry unit deployed to theater that we call Merrill's Marauders. And so by March, they're doing their thing in one of the well, most uh, hellacious campaigns in, in all well, of World War II. Um, I think we're going to be doing, we, we will be doing detailed pods on all these things and yeah, we will 100% be doing the admin box um, in the Arakan in February. Uh, we'll actually 100% be going into and going into some detail in the Battle of Empal and Kahima, um, which of course is taking place in kind of sort of March to July 1944 in that area of Northeast, uh, Northeast India actually. So all this to come in 2024. But um, John, uh, we've probably got to run out. We've run out of steam a little bit. Not run out of steam, but we've run out of time. Um, so we should call it quits there. But I think that's um, that's a pretty good overview. I'm I'm pretty happy with that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it whets the appetite. We're going to really be diving into this. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, listen, cheerio, everyone. Happy New Year to you all. Thank you for listening, and do keep listening as we've got a huge amount of stuff we're doing this year, and it's all pretty exciting stuff. John, great to see you. Happy New Year to you, and catch up with you very soon. Yeah, looking forward to it, Jim. Great to see you. Jerry over now. See ya.